your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you do. Join me in turning to the Gospel of John, chapter number 8. John's Gospel, chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 30 through 33 this morning. There are thousands of pastors all over America this morning who will look at this passage. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This is the quintessential Independence Day sermon text, right? I have a bit of a, a touch of nonconformist about me, and so it pains me to do what everyone else is doing. But I think there's opportunity here in the passage to see the text with a little more depth and to see it within the broader context of John's gospel and to find real nourishment of soul. And I think there's a great opportunity for discipleship here as well. Set within its context, the verse not only speaks to the wonder of liberty in the gospel, it goes further to answer some of the pressing questions of our day. John 8, beginning in verse 30. If you found your way there, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. This is what God's word says. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We're descendants of Abraham, they answered him, and we've never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say you will become free? May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. If you're just reading along in the Gospel of John, a superficial reading of John 8, specifically the term, uh, the language of verse 32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, you might find the statement to be just a touch disjointed, somewhat disconnected from its surrounding written context. The idea of truth is an issue early in John chapter 8. Jesus has made certain claims about himself. And the opposition of the Jews is that he's preaching falsehood. This begins a back and forth about the truth and the truthfulness of the message of the gospel, the truthfulness of Jesus' own message. But what has freedom to do really with this business, especially as it will be featured so significantly in the verses that follow after? You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. This only seems disjointed when disconnected from the broader context of John's gospel. What Jesus says here, in fact, much of John 2 and the following chapters, even through chapter 10 of this gospel, fall within a section of the gospel referred to in biblical study circles at times as the feast or festival section of John's gospel. In John's chronology of Jesus' life, much of his life is spent in the city of Jerusalem. At least much of the narrative is spent in the city of Jerusalem. And there's great detail about Jesus' interactions within and among and with the festival celebrations of Israel. Now, most of the time when we talk about the feast or festivals of the Bible, those biblically prescribed feast or festivals, we... Western readers of the Bible sort of glaze over. Most of us are 
disconnected altogether with the feast and the festivals, and we just sort of skip past those points, and we don't have good cultural points of reference for understanding what's unfolding in the background of the passage, so we read on in the hopes that we haven't missed something substantial. The festival celebration that lies in the background of John chapter 8 is the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, if we've struggled with understanding, it's worth noting that our English translations don't help us much. Because sometimes the festivals are described as festivals, and sometimes the festivals are described as feasts. But in your English translation, the feast and the festival is functionally the same. Then you have the added element of difficulty created by our English translations of these festivals. In that the feast or festival of the tabernacles, as we'll describe it this morning, is in some of your translations the festival or the feast of booths. And in some of your translation, the festival or the feast of tents. We're going to stick with the shared language. We're going to all be on the same page this morning and talk about the festival of tabernacles. But know that those terms are interchangeable. All efforts at translating what is unfolding in another language and in the experience of Israel's history. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles is prescribed by God for the nation of Israel through the prophet Moses. And the Feast of Tabernacles is, as its name implies, a way of celebrating that season in Israel's history when she was unstable as a people without a home, a land to call their own. You may remember that when the people of Israel came out of their Egyptian bondage, they were out in the wilderness, and for their unbelief that God would give them the land that flowed with milk and honey, God condemned them to 40 years of wilderness wandering. They were without a stable place, without a home to call their own. This was a rather unsettled time in Israel's history, a time when they lived in tabernacles or they lived in tents, when they were always moving around. And God said, I want you to celebrate in this seven-day feast or festival that time in Israel's history when you were wandering and without a home, and I want you to remember in that festival celebration how God provided for you each step along the way. In spite of the fact that they were wandering the wilderness under God's judgment, he did not leave them nor forsake them, but would provide for every need that would arise in that 40 years of wilderness wandering. The stage is set for this earlier in the Gospel of John. The Bible speaks specifically of the festival in John 7:37. The Bible makes reference to that last and most important day of the festival. And so everything that happens from John 7:37 even until where we are now revolves around the final day of the festival. Now on the seventh day of the festival, there, there, there was a ceremonial celebration of pouring water, which may sound somewhat strange. But the priest would gather and many would gather with them and they would march themselves as a body to the pool of Siloam. And they would take these great jars or pitchers and they would dip water from the pool of Siloam and then they would march back to the temple with great pomp and circumstance. And in this ceremonial process, they would pour this water out, remembering, memorializing the way God provided for the people of Israel water from the rock. And it was in that context that Jesus would say to the people, if anyone is thirsty, he should come to me and drink. 
The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. Jesus is using the imagery of the festival to advance his purpose in teaching each step along the way. Each night of the festival, the last night accepted, each night of the festival, there would be four great candelabras raised in the city of Jerusalem. And those, those candelabras were so great, the light was so fierce that much of the city would be lit. And anywhere on the holy hill, you could see that light. It was to memorialize, it was to commemorate God's presence with the people of Israel by a pillar of fire at night in their 40 years of wilderness wandering. And it was in that context, in fact, it was before daybreak on the last day, which by the way was the only day those four great lights were not lit, the only day those four great lights were not raised high in the city of Jerusalem. It was against the dark absence of that light that Jesus would say to those gathered, I am the light of the world. Jesus again is using the imagery of the festival again and again and again to say something of, of who he is. Now, in the biblically prescribed festival, there were but seven days. But as is often the case within a culture, there can be advancements or developments or evolution about the celebration. And for the, for the people of Israel, there was effectively an eighth day added to the Feast of Tabernacles as it was celebrated. Think about the Feast of Tabernacles. This is a celebration, a commemoration of their 40 years of wilderness wandering. But what happened at the end of that 40 years of their tabernacling in the wilderness? Under the leadership of Joshua, they would cross over the Jordan River and they would enter in to the land that flowed with milk and honey. For the first time in Israel's history as an ethnic people, they had a land to call their own with real geographic boundaries. In the mind of the Israelite, and as the celebration would unfold, the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacle marked the commencement of Israel as a nation. The eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacle for the Israelite was effectively their 4th of July. And that is the context in which Jesus says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Even at the conclusion of the Feast of Tabernacles, which covers a great deal of John's gospel, at least within this section, there is a second feast celebrated in John's telling of Jesus' life. In John chapter 9, there's a transition, a two-month lapse. You move from the Feast of Tabernacles to what is described here as the Feast of Dedication. Now, Feast of Dedication is not a biblically prescribed festival or feast, but it's probably the one you're most familiar with. Some of your translations will render Feast of Dedication as Festival of Lights or Feast of Lights. But commonly in our culture, we would make reference to this celebration as Hanukkah. That late November, early December Jewish celebration of God's provision in Israel's history. But it's not God's provision in biblical Israelite history. In fact, in that 400 years of time that lapses between the close of the Old Testament and the taking up of the gospel in the New Testament, in that prophetically silent season of Israel's history, 
Israel under the leadership of a priest named Mattathias and his sons won their independence from the Greeks. The Greeks had overwhelmed the nation of Israel. They had overtaken the city of Jerusalem and corrupted by presence and pagan sacrifice the, the Holy of Holies and the temple of God in Israel. And in 165, Mattathias and his sons retake and rededicate the temple to the worship of God. It was a momentous occasion in Israel's history. Legend has it that although there was one night's oil for the menorah, that the lamp would burn for several days, a testament to God's provision for Israel in freeing them from Greek oppression and liberating them for right worship and the rededication of the temple to the sacrificial and ceremonial system. But the sons of Mattathias and those that would come after them would prove to be poor shepherds. In fact, they would go the very way of the Greeks who ruled and oppressed them before. Effectively, they would sell out and turn coat. They would prove not to be the kind of shepherd that Israel needed as a people. And it's into this context that Jesus says, not only am I the good shepherd, but I have the ability to provide for you eternally what Mattathias and his sons could not provide temporarily. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish ever. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My kingdom, Jesus says, is an everlasting kingdom. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them from my father's hand. At every turn in John's gospel, Jesus is poking at these national institutions, reminding them that their greater issue, their greater concern ought not be earthly concerns, but eternal concerns. And those needs can only be met by an eternally reigning Lord Jesus Christ. Again and again and again in John's gospel, he's poking at these institutions. For Israel... They'd become something they were never intended to be. Even early in the gospel, John 2, Jesus goes to his first festival. It's the Passover. What does Jesus do there? It's the closest Jesus ever comes in his earthly life to having an absolute fit. He fashions a whip of cords, turns over the tables, and drives the money changers away from the court of the Gentiles. Everywhere else in the Bible, these feasts or festivals are referred to as the festivals of the Lord. But John is careful that they always be referred to as the festivals of the Jews. The way he categorizes those who continuously oppose Jesus over the duration of his life and ministry. These Moments to remember God's work among the people of Israel had become something they were never intended to be. At their heart, good, helpful reminders, ways of commemorating God's faithfulness along the way. But they'd become a source of pride for the people of Israel. Motivation for them to beat their chest arrogantly rather than humbly remembering the ways that God had provided, as opposed to looking at neighboring nations and going, but for the grace of God go I, they'd begun to beat their chest with a sense of superiority over all others. This is the context for Jesus' statement. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
the civil freedoms that we enjoy, and this is worth noting, this is a word of admonition to us, the civil freedoms that we enjoy, liberty, incredible liberty, such has seldom been known in the history of the world. These are but a faint shadow of the true freedom we stand to have in Jesus. The Jews can't fathom. How could you say we will be free? What do you mean? We are free. And yet Jesus has only now said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. There, there's, a, there's a real and growing generational divide in our country. And the church is not exempt from this. This may prove to be difficult conversation, but we don't do ourselves any favor in failing to have it. There is an older generation that is, is especially given to a strong sense of American pride and patriotism, and a younger generation that for a variety of different reasons just, not, just does not have the same degree of passion and gratitude for the country God has placed us in. And, and sincere Christians, for healthy biblical reasons, are asking the question now of, of how virtuous patriotism is and how much patriotism should be a part of our experience as American Christians. The Apostle Paul helps us with this, and it, it fits neatly within the framework of John's teaching here, the teaching of Jesus in John chapter 8. I want to invite you for just a moment to follow with me over to the book of Romans in chapter number 9. We see in the Apostle Paul a great deal of insight as to how to understand the role of patriotism within our experience and the point of balance that is often needed for us as well. Romans 9 verses 1 through 5. I'll let you catch me if you can. We'll begin reading in verse number 1. Paul says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience is testifying to me with the Holy Spirit that I have intense sorrow and continual anguish in my heart. For I could almost wish to be cursed and cut off from the Messiah for the benefit of my brothers, my own flesh and blood. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. The ancestors are theirs, and from them, by physical descent, came the Messiah, who is God over all, praise forever. Amen. Now, in my estimation, the Apostle Paul gives us a good, healthy, biblical picture of what it looks like to love country, to be, in our terminology, patriotic here in our passage. People can be really nonsensical about this, and I totally get it. So hear what the Scripture says. If you're too patriotic, they make you a part of some right-wing extremist group. If you're not patriotic enough, you belong to the woke mob. So let's let the Bible speak to this particular issue, right? Notice what Paul says. With regards to his home nation, there's a certain gratitude and pride and acknowledgement of the privileges that come with his association to the nation of Israel. Now, here is a universal privilege. To be thankful to God for the country he has placed you in is a universal virtue. Regardless of what country he has placed you in, God has provided in some extraordinary ways. And there ought to be no shame, there is no indignity about acknowledging the tremendous privileges that come with being a citizen of the country in which God has placed you. That is precisely what Paul is listing here in our passage. 
I I wish that I could be cut off, he says. I want my brothers, I want my nation, I want my people to know the message of the gospel. To them belong the adoption. This is a privilege, the glory, a privilege, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. The ancestors are there, and in their lineage, Jesus Christ was born. I want them to know Jesus, Paul says. He is exceptionally burdened. His fellow countrymen have endeared themselves to him in a special, unique way. But note what Paul is actively pursuing when he writes the very words of Romans chapter 9. Paul is actively pursuing the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ among people of every tribe and tongue and nation. For the Apostle Paul, in our terminology, his patriotism or affection for his country does not compel him to beat his chest with an invincible sense of absolute superiority, but moves him to humble gratitude at the myriad of ways God has provided for his people every step along the way. And I would remind us, not exclusively but primarily, citizens of this country, That we are where we are. We enjoy the freedom we enjoy this morning. None of you got up today fearful that you'd be persecuted for assembling with the body of Christ. What we enjoy is not the product of military fortitude. It is not the product of legendary leadership over many years. It is the work of a good and faithful providence from a good and faithful God who has made his face to shine on us in incredible ways. And we ought to celebrate that as a people, not with this exclusive spirit of superiority, but with the humble acknowledgement that we stand where we stand by God's provision. And it can in an instant be altogether different than what we know at the given moment. We should celebrate the benefits that come with our earthly citizenship. But at the same time, we should groan to fully receive the kingdom of our Savior. And that groaning must always take precedent. This again is a statement by Jesus within the framework of Israel's own celebration of freedom and independence. The commencement of their nation. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But notice for just a moment the way the Jews respond. We've referred to this, but let's dive a little deeper. They answer this proposition, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, with we are descendants of Abraham and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say we will be free? Now, number one, there are some historical problems with their response. Have you picked up on that? Remember, they're celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a commemoration of the season immediately after their release from Egyptian slavery. This is a testament to how our agendas can drive our historic ignorance. We tend to know what we want to know from our history and to dismiss those features that don't serve our aims, agendas, or the desired outcome we're pursuing. And here, what Israel is expressing, what what they're illustrating for us is the human tendency to prioritize the immediate 
over the eternal. Israel was existing in a time of relative freedom. Sometimes we look at the Gospels. We pass it. I'll give you an example. Jesus says, if anyone compels you to go one mile, go with him too. We, we think about a Roman centurion who inscripts a citizen to carry his bag for a mile, and Jesus saying that in addition to going that one mile, we should go too. And, and we read that forcefully into the experience of Israel as though there's a Roman garrison at every corner on every square, and they're constantly requiring the service of the people. That, that's just not true of Israel in Jesus' day. There is a fair amount of freedom that was enjoyed during this time. Did the Israelites like any Roman uh, presence in their nation? No, they didn't like it at all. They had a long history of not liking it, but they lived with relative freedom. They were, for the most part, in a civil sense, a free people. And they can't bear with the idea that Jesus would say to us, a free people, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But Jesus is not speaking to civil liberties. Jesus is speaking to far more pressing needs, not to the immediate civil freedom they enjoy to a greater or lesser degree, but to the deep and exhausting need of mankind for spiritual and eternal freedom that can only be found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. All over America, from sea to shining sea, today, yesterday, tomorrow, this country, from sea to shining sea, will celebrate liberty and independence. And yet the vast majority know nothing of the freedom we stand to have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We beat our chest with a sense of superiority as though we are indeed free. We can do what we want to do. But therein is no liberty the only freedom for us eternally is in the gospel. You can see this thing working itself out. Like I, it's, it's mystifying to me the way we talk about freedom and liberty at times. Like I, I, can, I can remember, let me give you an example from my own personal experience. Here's what I mean. I can remember being a teenage boy and insisting that nobody is going to tell me what to do. Now, now, I want, now here's what I want you to know about that situation. I was saying that wearing those silver bracelets that law enforcement likes to carry on their belt. Ain't nobody going to tell me what to do. Yes, they are. And they're actively telling you what to do. Your decision to not do what is right is resulting in the absence of your freedom. And you talk to any law enforcement officer, they, they hear that again and again and again. The boy at school, he's in class. Ain't nobody going to tell me what to do. And, and within 30 seconds, he's in in-school suspension. They are. People are going to actively tell you we have such a warped understanding of what it means to be free, to be at liberty. Listening to conversations over the past couple of weeks about Roe versus Wade. We're going to move to a place in the world where we have freedom of expression and the ability to choose. North Korea and China? Really? Try that on. See how that works. We have such a, a warped understanding of what it really looks like to be at liberty, to be free. This is more, Jesus says, than just the ability to make a cognitive decision about where you're going to do lunch today or where you're going to go on tomorrow, the ability to move about freely. This is about an eternal and spiritual freedom that can only be found in Jesus. In spite of all of our talk about liberty and freedom, there are untold millions within the context of this very free nation who are enslaved to their sin in absolute 
bondage, and only the gospel of Jesus Christ can set us free from that. Understated and undersold feature of the gospel is that neither you nor I have to live the way we have lived anymore because Jesus sets us free by the gospel. Whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not, you are enslaved to your sin. You may not have eyes to see the chains. You may not have a heart to discern the judgment, but the door has been closed behind you. Apart from the liberating grace of God found only in Jesus Christ, you will forever be a slave to that sin. Only the truth of the gospel can truly set you free. But like the Jews in our passage, our tendency is to prioritize the immediate over the eternal. To give over our unseen soul for what this measly world would offer or afford us. The Jews did this. The pride of ancestry blinded them from seeing their deep eternal need. And the same is true for us. There are times, I fear, when we give undue weight to our citizenship, benefits of freedom, access to the gospel, the comfort of affluence, and a host of other creature comforts customary to us in our great nation. Often intoxicated by these, we fail to see the depth of our eternal need, a need that can only be addressed by the message of the gospel. We say things so much they become trite. Doesn't matter where you're from, who you are, color of your skin, growing up in the, none, of, none of these things, listen, none of these things benefit your release from bondage to sin. Only Jesus has the keys that can set you free. And until you've humbly bowed the knee before his sovereign lordship, you will remain behind prison bars, enslaved to your same old way of life. Jesus says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth Jesus has reference to here is effectively the truth of the gospel. A gospel that says that Jesus came and he fought for us and he won the victory. The story of the Bible, if you're new to the study of the Bible, it is the story of God's people failing to do what needed to be done. And so God comes down from heaven and does it himself. That's the story of the Bible. The only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ, clothes himself in flesh, comes to walk among his people. John would say in John 1, he came unto his own, but his own did not receive him. Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. He fought for us. At the end of his life, Jesus, not for crimes that he had done, but for your sin and for mine, was nailed, was killed by execution on a Roman cross. There at the cross, Jesus pays the penalty for our sin. The Bible says the punishment for sin is death. And Jesus drank the bitter cup of God's judgment against us there at Calvary down to the last drop. 
buried away outside the city of Jerusalem. On the third day, Jesus began to breathe again and in great victory over death and hell and the grave and the sin that besets us. Jesus walked out in absolute victory. He fought for us and he won, securing by faith in him our eternal, our forever liberty, our forever freedom in the gospel. This is the message of the Bible. It's precisely the thing to which Jesus alludes when he says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I'm convinced that in every service, there are folks who are just sick of their sin. It's just heavy. It's heavy. I think there, I think there has to be that sense of sickness over sin and the weight of shame kind of marks the beginning of our appreciation for what Jesus does for us in grace and mercy and forgiveness. If you're here this morning and sorrow over sin, godly sorrow and guilt are heavy, there's one to lift our burden, and his name is Jesus.